podcast uses profanity and topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listen at your own risk. Welcome to Hell on Hills podcast. I'm Bryce. I'm Amanda. And hello again. Hi. This is my sultry voice. She's turning it up for me. Mm-hmm. Is it getting hot in here? Just you. Oh. <laughs> um amanda would you like to tell everyone about your sultry voice today um yes it is brought to you by allergy induced laryngitis so here we are it's been real polleny lately polleny hm. yeah the pollen is popping i guess Pop some popping pollen mm-hmm. okay well i don't have that issue <laughs> what is that life like it's great that's wonderful, actually. The issue oh. I do, however, have is a crackhead dog, which you I'm pretty sure you got plenty of Snapchats of her today. Yeah, she was definitely um, in your shit. All the fucking time. <laughs> She's also been a royal biatch to our big dogs lately, and I'm ready to kick her ass. Why don't you just bring the other dogs back over for a while and really... Put her in her place. Probably why she's pissed off at me is because <laughs> I had Dash and Izzy for so long. She thought that she was being replaced. But she has been today, actually, for like the past few days, she's just been increasingly being meaner to the big boys. And I'm not okay with it. Is she so, in her adolescence? She is. She'll be two this year in October. Oh, God. So she's really feeling it. I've got my own terrible twos to deal with. So. There's that. I'm trying to think. There was something else I was going to tell you. But I don't remember what it was. I'm really good at that lately. I am no help. I don't. You're never any help. It's fine. Look, you sound like my husband. Calm down. Listen, James and I were friends before you and I met. Let's just remember that. Yeah, but then I took both of you individually for my own. <laughs> you just came in and were like, no, man, sorry. No, this is your new job, and this is your new job. <laughs> we're not doing great at it, apparently, today. <laughs> so sorry. Um, you know what? Let me just complain really quickly about my okay. parents. Because I had a mini heart attack this morning. Would you like to know why I had a mini heart attack this morning? I would love to. Because I woke up to a missed call from my dad at one in the morning. No text, no voicemail, nothing. Just a missed call. What? Does your dad work nights? No. Oh. So my family, we don't call each other in the middle of the night unless it's an emergency right Right. i feel like that's a lot of families unless they have night shift workers or if it's my mom who wants to wake me up at three in the morning to tell me my sister had a baby and i'm just gonna say goodbye you know like (laughs) that's fine so i wake up to a missed call and i am pissed because this man didn't even call me My mom couldn't find her phone when she couldn't sleep at one in the morning and she was trying to call her phone, but (laughs) called me on accident. So I wake up all panicked, like what (laughs) happened last night that I slept right on through. 
<laughs> Anyways, that's my complaint today. Um, highly upset with my father and mother. Yeah, I feel like um, at the very least, a text message would have been kind of nice. Sorry, didn't mean to call. Mm-hmm. Thanks. That, that's all yeah. I'm asking for. Anyways, I'm upset and I'm a little cranky. I'm really cranky about it because it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. Dad, <laughs> do you hear laugh. me? I know that sounded funny. That was a laugh. <laughs> do you hear me, Dad? I just, I don't approve. She's not over it. I'm not. I'm not over it. I'm not okay. My morning did not start off right. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's fine. All right. For anyone wondering, though, we do post our pictures on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, Helen Hills Podcast, Twitter, Helen Hills Pod. If you have any suggestions, words of encouragement, whatever you want, you can email us at Helen Hills Podcast at gmail.com. Um, our Discord's up, our Patreon's up. We're posting specials everywhere that we can. Um, but I think maybe are you ready for me to stop procrastinating and get into a story? I'm not sure. Just do it. Because you sent me another text today. Um, yeah. So, listen. I did. I sent a text today that said, I'm sorry in advance. Here we are. Okay. Uh, um, let me get my notes up. I guess that would help. So, I decided enough time had passed. Also, after your story last week, you gave me permission to go back to my thought catalog website. So. With that being said, I did. And I'm sorry. <laughs> have you ever heard of the Hi-Fi murders? I don't think that I have. Okay, cool. So I actually called my dad and asked him about it. He does know about it. Granted, it was also in Ogden, Utah. So it's about, from where I live, it's about two, two and a half hour drive for me now. Um, okay. So just around the corner. And there are... A lot of people involved in this story. So I'm going to give you background on the victims that I could find. Um, Correction, the background that I could find. These are all the victims. So Sherry Michelle Ansley, she went by Michelle. She was born on January 24th, 1956. She was just about 18 years old. And in early April 1974, she would begin working at the Hi-Fi shop. Hi-Fi was a home audio store in Ogden. So was it kind of like a Radio Shack or something back in the day? Yeah, kind of. Like, they had records. They sold audio equipment. Like, nice stuff. You know, nothing too too insane. Okay. And then she was also... So, not Sherry. I'm sorry. Michelle, she was also engaged. She was planning her wedding. Like, they had the date, August 5th, coming up right around the corner. You know, she was really young. She had her whole life ahead of her. Um, What month did you say this happened in? I haven't. Oh, okay. But I can tell you it happened in April of 1974. Oh, God. So her, she was super close to her wedding date. Yeah. She was super, super close. I don't know how long ago she had gotten engaged, but I do know mm-hmm. she was very close to her wedding date. She was also very, very young. So 18 years old, you know. I can just feel her excitement. Yours. I'm sorry. Well, so she is our first victim. And then we have Stanley. Stanley Oren Walker, who was born on March 19th, 1954. He was also an employee at the Hi-Fi shop. Uh, April 1974, he was just about 20 years old. 
I don't have a lot of background on him. Uh, seemed like he had a pretty normal upbringing, uh, loving parents, all of that. You'll see why I say loving parents in just a minute. Our next victim is Byron Courtney Nesbitt. He went by Courtney. He was born on September 25th, 1957. He was just 16 years old in April of 1974. He was a student at the local high school at Ogden High. And he was considered a very bright young man. A lot of people described him as one of those people they could see making a really big difference in the world. Now we have Orin William Walker. He was born September 17th, 1930. He was 43 years old. And he was the father to the employee Stanley Walker, the 20-year-old employee. So that's kind of okay. where I'm like, I, I, he had a pretty good upbringing. Again, you'll, you'll learn more about it or learn more about the situation. And then the final victim is Carol Elaine Nesbitt. Um, she was born December 25th, 1921. She was 52 years old and the mother of Courtney Nesbitt, the 16-year-old. So this is just like... A bunch is God. So first of all, not only are roughly half of them very young, but also it sounds like just a family place. Well, let's just get into it. So on the night of April 22nd, and I will do my best to make sure to keep the name straight so, so that everyone follows along, all of that. On the night of April 22nd, 1974, both Michelle, the 18-year-old, and Stanley, the 20-year-old, were working the closing shift at Hi-Fi. Shortly before closing time, some reports said it was about 6 o'clock at night that they typically closed. Shortly before closing time, a light-colored van holding three men would pull up to the shop. We know that this contained Dale Selby Pierre, who was born on January 21st, 1953. He would have been about 21 years old at the time. He was from Trinidad and Tobago. He was a U.S. airman. He had started in the U.S. Air Force in May of 1973. He was initially stationed back east, but would end up stationed at Hill Air Force Base in Utah in September of 1973. He was a helicopter mechanic. Again, he was really young. Um, and let's just say he didn't have the best start in Utah. In October 1973, he was the prime suspect for a murder. And um, let's remember he is enlisted. He is enlisted, but he got transferred to Hill Air Force Base in September. And October mm -hmm. is when he became the prime suspect for this murder of Edward Jefferson. Um, Jefferson was an Air Force sergeant. There's not enough evidence for police to file charges. At the time, they had nothing. Um, they just had kind of like the connect the dots, the circumstantials. Right. But nothing solid. Mm -hmm. Correct. In April of 1974, 1974, Pierre was actually out on bail for the theft of a car from a car dealership. And he's enlisted? It said that he was trying to get out of the Air Force. At the time, like the paperwork was supposedly already started for him to be out and he was just waiting for everything to go through. So, yeah, he. Yeah. OK, because all of this is starting to sound like he's trying to get out and it's not working. Mm -hmm. Good God. How hard is it to get kicked out of the military? Uh, well, in 1974, apparently it was really hard. I don't know. Murder and stealing a car was not enough. 
Yeah, I guess not. Correction, suspected murder and stealing a car. Not enough. And then we have William Andrew. He was born in 1955. He was also a U.S. airman and helicopter mechanic at Hill Air Force Base. What is happening? He was 19 years old. He he met Pierre at Hill for, Hill Force Base. Hills Air Force Base. Jesus Christ. It's, I know what it is. I can speak. And so that's where he met Pierre. And then the third is Keith Roberts. He was born on January 5th, 1954. Again, he's also a U.S. airman. Do they not do, like, mental examinations or something? Like, I feel like that's a thing. Not Maybe it is 70s. now. It, well, that feels pretty apparent. I'm glad somebody, some, t- some way along the line, learned their lesson. Good God. Shouldn't yeah, they be sorry. doing sit-ups or something? How do they even have time for this? I have no clue. I, I don't even have time for that. And I, I mean, <laughs> come on. So, Keith Roberts, he was actually the getaway driver. I haven't given full details, but he was the getaway driver. Now, there are quite a few reports that state that there were actually a total of six men with two vans. Two people stayed outside, one of those being Keith, and four entered the store. Two of those people that entered the store being William Andrew and Dale Selby Pierre. However... The ports were so inconsistent, and I couldn't tell if it's just because the three additional individuals were never identified, so stories didn't focus on them, or if it's because the other three were just invented. I'm not sure. I I did everything I could. I Google Scholar everything. I could not figure out if there were three or six men, okay? And I tried. I promise. I tried all day today. Okay, so three with the potential for six. Correct. So, of the men who go into the store, we know for sure William Andrew and Pierre. They go in. And when they go into the store, they're brandishing handguns. Um, yep. Super great. Okay, starting off strong here. I don't like it. Starting off. Oh, it gets worse. Perfect. They take... They take the 18-year-old Michelle and 20-year-old Stanley, the employees, they take them as hostage. They take them down to the store's basement and bind them. And then the gang starts robbing the store. Okay. What the gang did not expect was that 16-year-old Courtney Nazebit would enter the store. Courtney had stopped at the store to thank them for allowing him to park his car in their parking lot while he ran an errand next door. Oh, no. A little bit of a twist for our our thieves here. But they would take Courtney Nesbitt hostage as well, tie him up in the basement along with Michelle and Stanley. Later that evening, Courtney's parents start becoming worried about their son not returning home. It was unlike him. And they're just not sure what's going on. So Carol would then head to the store, his mother. And Oren Walker, he also became worried for his son's son, Stanley. And he would also head over to the store. Okay. Um, at any point, do these thugs lock the door? No. Not that I'm okay. aware of. All right. Okay, good. So they obviously learned from their mistakes. Perfect. 
I just feel like if somebody came in the first time and they're like, shit, okay, put them downstairs with the rest of them. One of the three, possibly six people would be like, hey, we should lock the door. Well, when you're stupid. Fair point. You don't know what to say there, Fair okay? Point. Damn, the military really will let anybody in there. <laughs> Listen. I don't know anything about Pierre's and Andrew's backgrounds, or I don't know a lot. I'm just saying they're doing this robbery. They're stupid. Okay. Well, okay then. Okay, that's fair. You don't know much about their background. So they might not have had doors growing up and not knew that they would lock. <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> Definitely did not say that. Anyways, so... Orin and Carol, they're now taken hostage and tied up in the basement with the others. Now, can you imagine the horror of being bound in a basement, not knowing what's going to happen next? No. And now your kids are there, too. And vice right. versa. Now your parents are there. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so, Pierre, he sends Andrews outside to the van to get something. Andrews returns with a bottle in a brown paper bag. They pour the contents of this bottle in a brown paper bag in a cup. And the men initially order Oren, the father, to Stanley, the employee, to give the contents or to administer the contents to the other hostages. And Oren refuses. So they get mad and they bind gag and he gets left face down in the basement floor because of his refusal. Pierre and Andrews then, they start positioning other hostages, pulling them up into a sitting position and forcing them to drink the substance. The men had told them it was vodka laced with sleeping pills. Would you like to take a guess what was actually in the bag? Uh, Was it worse than vodka and sleeping pills? Oh, so much worse. Was it some kind of acid? Um, it was Drano. Oh my god. Oh my god. Why? Why, why, why? Why, did they, why are they doing this? Um, in, intent for the Drano to kill them? But you, so, but you, but you don't have to. They're already, you can leave them there. You can get your stuff and go home. I feel like at this point, this is not about the robbery. Well, we'll get to it. Holy so, shit. All of the men and women taken hostage are forced to drink Drano. And it starts with Carol Nesbitt, who actually refused at first when she was told that it was vodka with sleeping pills because it was against her religion. In the LDS religion, they don't drink alcohol. So that pisses them off. They force her mouth open and pour the liquid into her mouth. This caused immediate blisters on their lips, burns to their tongues, burns to their throats. The skin around their mouths began to peel, and eventually it would cause convulsions in the victims. And this is happening immediately. So they are seeing this happen, knowing, like, that bottle's coming to me next. They're, so they're seeing, like, these burns, but also they might not see the person's face. They might just hear the coughing and the sputtering. I know oh. um, some of them, when it first started, were laying down. Courtney Nesbitt, he actually... Um, spoiler alert he did survive he there was a book about his perspective um and it talked about how you know he couldn't see his mom because of how he was laying down all the time so they're hearing her coughing and her sputtering 
not necessarily knowing what it's doing to her throat and just burning and blistering and everything. But what else are they going to do? They are. Good God. Yeah. So Pierre and Andrews do go around to each victim doing the same thing, forcing them to drink it. Michelle Ansley, she begged for her life. She was just 18 planning her wedding. And I mean, even as she sat and begged them, they still forced her to drink this Drano. Oren, who refused to help administer anything, he was the last to be forced to drink the liquid. He, however, would not. He had seen and heard what it had done for other people. He was connecting dots. So he did not actually swallow the liquid. To my understanding and how it was explained is the liquid was poured into his mouth. He pretended to swallow, which I don't know how you do that. But he was able to spit it out when Pierre and Andrews were not looking. And then he mimicked the screams and the convulsions of the others. So he kind of mimicked their reactions. Though I'm sure just having that in your mouth doesn't sound great. Pierre and Andrews, they were then, just because they went to go start administering it to everyone again, make them drink it a second time. What the, what the, Bryce? They thought they had a great idea. And they were going to put Drano in the victim's mouths and then duct tape their mouths closed. Or tape it with masking tape or whatever tape they had. Again, why? What What are you, why? This would then force the victims to keep the Drano in their mouths. And it was hypothetically silence their screams. However, the blisters that it had caused on their skin, as well as the liquid getting on their face, it did prevent any type of tape from adhering to the victim's mouths. So, like I said... Andrews and Pierre, them giving them the hostages Drano was an attempt to kill them. They had every intention of leaving no witnesses. Dale Pierre, he would, however, start getting a little impatient and frustrated. And it's because the deaths of the hostages were taking too long. It was too loud. It was too messy. So he starts to kind of take his anger out, as far as I'm concerned. And he would shoot Carol and her son Courtney Naisbitt in the back of their heads. Both of them would survive initially. Pierre would then shoot at Stanley Walker and miss. He would take a second shot and this was a fatal shot to Stanley Walker. He would then shoot at Oren Walker. The bullet would graze the back of his head but it was not life-threatening. Pierre has now shot four of the five hostages and he would turn his attention to 18-year-old Michelle. He would take Michelle to a far corner of the basement. He held her at gunpoint and forced her to undress. He would then tell Andrews, just leave me to it for 30 minutes. And Pierre would then repeatedly rape Michelle. When he was done, he would allow her to use the bathroom while he watched. He would drag her back to the other hostages. He did not allow her to dress herself again. He threw her down on her face. She's naked. She's scared. She is begging for her life. And she's in front of these other hostages. And he would fatally shoot her in the back of the head. Reportedly, her final words were, I'm too young to die. This guy's a freaking monster. Yes, he is. Andrews and Pierre would realize that Oren... Walker, he was still alive. 
So Pierre would wrap a wire around his throat and he would try to strangle him. He failed to strangle Oren Walker. So Pierre and Andrews would put a ballpoint pen into Oren's ear. Pierre would stomp it until it punctured his eardrum. Oh my God. Broke and exited through his throat. Why? Why do you have to do it like this? Like, if you're going to, I don't. Okay, first of all, don't kill people, obviously. But what kind of fucked up individual thinks of these ways to kill strangers? Strangers. Complete strangers, right? I, I can't even imagine doing this kind of shit to people I don't like or actively hate. I can't imagine this ever coming to my mind. No. Like, I would never think give this person Drano and it would kill him or put a pen in someone's ear. Like, it, never. It's like, Not, he's, it, it's like he's just literally grabbing stuff and being like, oh, well, I can do this with that. That's not normal. That's not normal. Nope. Good God. Is he still alive? Can you just tell me, please? Who? Uh, Pierre. Pierre? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you later. Just focus on the rest of the story. So, Pierre uh. and Andrews, they then believe that Oren and all the victims at this time were dead. They were like, job accomplished, we're good. They head upstairs to finish loading equipment into their van. And they leave. This entire ordeal is believed to have lasted about two hours for the hostages. Again, what kind of person? This was, this was, nobody will ever convince me that they just went into this place just to rob it. No. No. So, the victims would be found nearly three hours later. So, Oren's wife and his younger son would come to the store looking for Oren and Stanley. Oren's son had heard noises coming from the basement and, hey, that door was locked, but they do break it down. Don't do this. Don't, don't do it. Don't tell me his family finds him. Yeah. So they walk in and see Carnage. Yeah. God. Now, keep in mind, they likely knew that Oren and Stanley were there. Because they would have had their cars in the parking lot. Oh, no. So, Mrs. Walker, she immediately calls the Ogden police. Stanley Walker and Michelle Ansley were both fatally shot in the basement. They were dead when police arrived. Carol Naisbit was still alive, and she was taken by ambulance to St. Benedict's Hospital, which is now, like, the Ogden Regional Hospital. She was unfortunately unfortunately pronounced dead on arrival. Courtney Naisbit, he was also taken to the hospital. He was not expected to, to survive due to the severity of the, his injuries. Forced to drink Drano and then shot in the back of the head. Ugh. He would, however, su- survive with severe and irreparable brain damage. He was hospitalized for 266 days. Oh my god. He suffered amnesia from the event. Oren Walker also survived. He had extensive burns to his mouth and chin, severe damage to his ear from the pen. He was lucky to, to have survived. Again, doctors did not think he would survive from his injuries. 
But he had found that him swallowing would force the pen out of his throat so he could breathe. Okay. This man is also inhuman, but in a completely different way. Opposites. Yeah. He's, so he does survive, but his memory's intact. Oh, good. Oh, well, I mean, bittersweet, I guess I should say. Despite his injuries, he's able to give a description of the two men that he called the two leading robbers. And he also gave the description of the man who fired all the fatal shots to the other victims. He, this is his quote. Uh, he described Pierre as a short-statured, bespectacled black male with a Caribbean accent. His words, not mine. Um, also, as a quick reminder, Pierre is from Trinidad and Tobago, so he did have an accent. Police, they, it doesn't really take them that long to identify Dale, Pierre, but there's other factors that kind of help identify him. Other than his record? Well, the three men are all U.S. airmen. And after mm -hmm. the news of the crime broke, an anonymous Air Force employee would call the Ogden police. This employee would tell them that Airman Andrews, so this one's not about Pierre, this one's about Andrews. But Airman Andrews had confided in him months earlier about his intent to rob the hi-fi shop. And this is the quote given to us from this anonymous person. Quote, one of these days, so this is, sorry, let me correct myself. This is the quote from the anonymous person, but they're quoting Andrews. Gotcha. Okay. Quote, one of these days I'm going to rob that hi-fi shop. And if anybody gets in the way, I'm going to kill them. No, literally nobody was in your way. Nobody, you could have just left them there. This tip also just came hours, just hours after the news of the crime broke. Thank God. Right? And a couple hours after that, another tip comes in. Mm -hmm. Two teen teenage boys would call police. Those teenage boys, listen, I don't know what was happening in the 70s. But these two boys were dumpster diving at Hill Air Force Base. Uh, okay. Okay. They would discover the victims' wallets and purses. Pierre and Andrews had taken wallets and purses from the victims. Thank God they are so dumb. And these teenage boys, they recognized the pictures on the driver's licenses as the victims that they had seen, whether news, whatever they had seen a dog. And let's top it all off. They were dumpster diving near the barracks that both Pierre and Andrew was, Andrews were living in. So they put the only thought they put into this was how to torture these people. Basically. Now, at this point, police don't necessarily know it's Pierre and Andrews. So like it doesn't take them long to narrow down. But let's just. I just want to shout out this detective right now because he followed his gut and boy, was he right. So detective Deloy White, he would respond to the call for the, the scene at the dumpster near the barracks. He had a hunch that the culprits, they might be lurking about and return to the scene. Okay. So he made a show for the gathered spectators. He was speaking dramatically. He would wave the evidence around in the air with taunt. Just imagine this officer in a dumpster speaking loudly and dramatically and just holding evidence up, 
waving it around like he just don't care. I feel like this was just him and his personality, actually. And later on, he passed it off as like, no, I totally dig that because I knew they were there. But really, he's just over the top like that all the time. (laughs) How I understood it, it was not. Just him being over the top. But he did, as he did this, he was watching all the gathered servicemen and women who were present. And he said, most of them stood still. They watched in relative silence. You might have seen them whisper to one another, asking what's going on or whatever. But there were two who stood out. They paced around the crowd. They spoke loudly. They made frantic gestures with their hands at each other. And these well, they're men- really stupid. No, right? These men were identified as Pierre and Andrews. So, also as just as a side note, Detective Deloy White, he did get an award from the Utah Branch of Justice Department for his use of proactive techniques for all of what he did. So, hell yeah, Drama King, you get it. <laughs> he did the damn thing, okay? You use those tongs, Mr. White. He's Excuse like, me, I'm going Officer White. Detective White. Detective White. Look, I would have got to it eventually, okay? <laughs> Sergeant White. He, he went all the way back to the high school um, drama class. He was, he was reaching. <laughs> he was like, it's always been my dream to be an actor. <laughs> Anyways. So, just due to their reactions, Andrews and Pierre, they are taken in for questioning. They also have a search warrant issued for their barracks, and police find flyers for the hi-fi shop and a rental contract for a unit at a public storage facility. Gee, what could possibly be in there? The contract was signed by Pierre. And they actually found this under, like, some sources called it a rug. Other sources made me believe, like, it was, you know, those cheapy tile carpet tiles that you can just kind of pull up easily. Yeah. Some made it seem like it was more of that. Unclear there. But it was hidden under some sort of carpet. And the storage facility, it was only a couple blocks away from the hi-fi store. Let me guess it was unlocked as well. No, this one was locked. Okay. They learned a lesson somewhere, <laughs> I guess. Police do get a second search warrant, and it would be issued for the storage unit. Would you like to know what they found? Um, maybe a couple of TVs, records, things that are generally sold in a hi-fi shop. They found stereo equipment taken from the hi-fi shop that no. they were able they were able to confirm via serial numbers. That was planted. They also found a half-empty bottle of Drano. Why did they keep it? What is this, some kind of fucked up trophy? Why would you keep it? You threw away the wallets and you kept the Drano? They probably didn't think anyone was going to find their storage unit. So the evidence was all going in the storage unit. Not all of it. Some of it you just threw out willy-nilly in the dumpster. And everything else. I'm so mad right now. So... Let's just put it this way. There's enough. There's more than enough evidence against them. Also, at least one witness that can identify them. There's no way this guy killed that first guy. It can't be. 
he can't have went to like everything was circumstantial to everything is literally right in front of you. I can't tell you. I mean, I can tell you that they do. Um, there was a board that basically looked at the two crimes, uh, compared the similarities, and they kind of decided if it could possibly be Pierre or not that did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I have that later on in my notes. We'll talk about it though. Don't worry. I'm okay. Sure well, I'm, okay. Cool. I'm interested, so I'll try to remember to ask if you don't. I know I have more about um, what's his name, the Airman Edwards. It'll come to me. Don't worry. Um. Anyways, so let's just say there's plenty of evidence against him. But during the investigation, Pierre and Andrews were uncooperative. They did not confess. They barely spoke to police. Correction, they barely spoke to police once they knew they were suspects. So the third man that I identified, Keith Roberts, he was taken into custody after he was identified through questioning. And while he did stay in the vehicle, he was considered part of the robbery, getaway driver and all. The group, all three of them, would be charged with first-degree murder and aggravated robbery. Not enough. Not enough. Absolutely not enough. Now, typically first-degree murder cases, we often hear them talk about there has to be premeditation, right? Well, during trial, it did come out that Pierre and Andrews had the intent to rob the store and kill anyone they encountered. Months prior to the robbery and murders, the two had been looking for ways to commit the murders quietly and cleanly. They had watched the film Magnum Force. I've never seen this uh, movie, but in a documentary, it showed me the clip that gave them the idea. In this movie, it depicts a woman who drinks Drano while she's forced to drink Drano, and she dies almost immediately in the movie. It's a movie. Well, they decided to use it thinking that Hollywood would never lie to them. I'm, I'm, I'm just... I know, you're happy. You went from quickly and cleanly, that was your goal here, to, to Drano, shooting, raping... Attempted and strangulation a and a pen. A, yeah, I'm sorry, yes. The strangulation and a pen. What? Yeah, it was not great. During trial, it also comes out that Pierre was the mastermind behind all of the crimes. Andrews was more of a follower. Oren Walker did testify as he was able to describe what happened to everyone. And he, he was like the star witness. Which, on one hand, like, really great for Oren. He survived. But he also watched his son be murdered in cold blood. Along with three other or two other people, and then tell everyone about it, probably repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Or and he goes through. He describes all of the events, what happens. He does also, you know, point out Pierre is the one that shot everyone. Andrews did not. Courtney Naisbit, the sixteen-year-old, he was not able to testify due to first of all his condition and the amnesia he suffered. Now, I already said this was a joint trial. For Pierre, actually, did I? I don't know. If I didn't mention it, this was a joint trial. So Pierre, Andrews, and Roberts, their joint trial starts October 5th, 1974. 
On November 16th, 1974, Pierre and Andrews are convicted on all charges, both the robbery and first-degree murder. Roberts, on the other hand, he was only convicted for the robbery. I'll explain that in just a second. On November 20th, 1974, Pierre and Andrews would be sentenced to death. Pierre was sentenced to three death sentences, one for each murdered victim. Andrews was also sentenced to three death sentences, one for each murdered victim. Though, Andrews' sentence was a little bit more controversial. And this was because Andrews had not actually killed any of the victims, at least by all technicalities. It was Pierre that had shot and killed the three victims. However, Andrews did forcefully administer the Drano to the murdered victims. So, I'm sorry guys, he played a role. Yeah, like his intent was there. Mm-hmm. Roberts, he was only sentenced to five years to life. He was acquitted of the murder charges. It was found that he had no role or knowledge of the murders. So he was convicted on two counts of aggravated robbery, and that's it. I mean, if he stayed in the van the whole time, I, I can kind of see that. I still have to wonder, like, did you know they had Drano? Did you know what it was for? Uh, yeah, that's one thing that I questioned was how much did you really know about their intent? And also yeah. after that, how much did you know about what they did inside? Because yeah. I don't get the feeling they were quiet about it. Well, even then, like you're waiting in a van for two hours. You didn't at all wonder like what they're doing. You didn't question that. Yeah, There was one report that Roberts actually would leave. He got cold feet and would leave. But there was only one report that said that. So. Mm-hmm. Accuracy of that, I'm not quite clear on. Now, there were a lot of upset people with these death sentences. Specifically, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and the Amnesty International. Many believe that the sentences should be revoked due to racial bias at the trial. So both Andrews and Pierre are African-American. So. The NAACP and Amnesty, they would campaign to commute Pierre's and Andrew's death sentences. They noted, you know what, both defendants are African-American and the victims and the entire jury were white. And that the only potential African-American member of the jury was stricken during jury selection. So they tried to say there, there could have been, but then you guys dismissed him before. However... Reports state that he was stricken from jury duty due to the fact that this specific jury member was also a law enforcement officer, and he personally knew, quote, just about everyone tied to the case. Okay, but you still couldn't have found any, anybody else, any other people of color? Well, that does, like, I see their point on that. Okay, it does but. It feel like a sticky situation. Sorry. Let me. Yeah, hold on. So they also went on and claimed that the state often used, would not use capital punishment on white murderers. Accuracy of that, I did not validate. I do. It was 1974. I get it. Times are different. I'm sorry. However, this whole argument that there was racial bias was overall thrown out. The lawyers for the state point out that the jury makeup actually matched with Ogden's demographics. The area was predominantly white at the time. So they couldn't 
exactly go out and start finding people of color to be on the jury. It matched what their demographics was at the time. So the state basically says it was unintentional that the jury had no members of color on it. Okay. I guess I can see that side of it too. And I was going to ask, um, like, what the ratio of was, I guess, that uh, people of color and white people being convicted of the death penalty. But also at the same, like, I'm on the fence about the death penalty personally. But these are the people that make me question that because these people, like, if anybody deserves it, kind of feel like at least the one guy does, the leader of it all. Mm-hmm. He did some pretty heinous shit that is absolutely inhuman. Yeah, he he definitely did. Judge, he's like, no, there was no racial bias, so on and so forth. Now, let's just say that Pierre and Andrews were hated in prison by the other prisoners. They were not friends with other people. Oh, were they not? No. I can't imagine why. Yeah. Even one reported murderer, Gary Gilmore, who was also on death row, claimed to have said, quote, I'll see you in hell, Pierre and Andrews, as he passed by their cells on his way to his firing squad execution. So, like, they were just not popular by any means, not even on, like, death row. So even amongst the worst of the worst, they were considered the worst. Years later, Dr. Al Carlisle, he comes in and he's actually... He's kind of doing some research and he's his research is kind of on the development of violent minds. So he's trying to figure out like what makes these people so different, so violent. Like, is there a trigger? Is there a commonality? So he's kind of doing this type of research here. And let's just remember that during the investigation and trial, Andrews and Pierre both tight-lipped. Even after they got to prison, tight-lipped. They did not speak of it. They never confessed to it. That was until about 10 years later when they would agree to interview with Dr. Al Carlisle. So Dr. Carlisle, he actually did um, an interview with Ted Bundy. So like he, you know, he's, he knows what he's doing. Done this before. Yeah. And so he's studying this man and he does Carlisle personally interviews Pierre and he has one of his colleagues interview Andrews. When they do these interviews, They both speak more freely about the crimes than they ever had before. Andrews and Pierre both point the finger at one another. They don't really take responsibility. I mean, they confess to an extent, but it didn't really feel like they were like, yeah, whatever, I'm so sorry. Um, It was more like the way that Pierre spoke was that the events happened to him as well. So he kind of tried to portray it like he was in some sort of trance rather than being in control of himself. So he kind of was like, yeah, this thing happened and I was there. Oh, shut up. Yes. A lot of people think that it might have been him trying to put on a show or gain sympathy. I'm not buying it because what he did was vile. Yeah. Now, if you want to hear parts of the interview and hear about what the experts think of the interview, you can watch Violent Minds, Killers on Tape, Season 1, Episode 3. I think you can watch it on Peacock for free, Amazon Primes for like $3 an episode. This also does go into more details about the Edward Jefferson case that Pierre was believed to be responsible for as well. I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier that there was that that board that reviewed the two crimes, the hi-fi and... Um, the Edward Jefferson case, 
just to see is it possible that this was Pierre? And to their their conclusion was that they did believe that Pierre was responsible for the murder of Edward Jefferson as well. I mean, based on the way he killed these people, it it wouldn't surprise me because there's no way this is the first time he was just way too freaking brutal. But mm-hmm. like, how the hell did you get away with it if he really did do it? Um, he just there was just nothing to connect him. That had to have been luck. Oh, God, I know, right? Now, while in prison, Pierre, he would change his name 27 times. For what? According to him, this was to protect his family name, his family legacy, whatever he wanted to call it, to protect his family name. Would you like to know what name he settled on? Uh, Douchebag McGee. God, that would have been so much better. So Dale Selby Pierre would become Pierre Del Selby. Bryce, get the fuck out of here. Are you? You're. <laughs> what? It drove me nuts. I get that he legally changed his name, but I refuse, refuse to call, like, call him by his new name. You are shitting my dick right now. <laughs> no. I'm so sorry. I've, I've cussed, I think, more in this episode than very many an episode but hold on hold on you you kept the same names it took you 27 times to just put them backwards (laughs) he just put pierre at the front and moved everything back dale selby pierre becomes pierre dale selby so it took him 27 years no not years attempts i'm sorry thank you it took him 27 tries to just do pig Latin, basically? Like, what is... I don't know what his thought process was. I just know that's what he landed on. Oh, I know what it, his thought process was. There wasn't one. The entire time for his entire life, there was no thought processes. The hell were the other 26? I don't I'm know. Sorry. I'm sorry. I cannot <laughs> stand this guy. It was probably like Pear Delby... Sierra or something stupid where he just moved a letter. I can't. It was probably literally whatever was in the room with him. Like, I guarantee you he's been a lamp at one point. Okay, okay. So Pierre, he asks for clemency, stating that he I mean, he claims he had a strict upbringing or a violent upbringing and now he's a changed man. He also stated during his clemency hearing, quote, Quote, the crime took a course of its own. It wasn't planned that way. People kept coming in and I just panicked. The only way to prevent what happened was to have been moved away from the Air Force entirely. Of course, the alcohol and pills I was consuming didn't help. Valiums, reds, black beauties, and yellow jackets. Everyone has a limit beyond which they don't, won't go. Drugs, etc. can alter that limit. I tell myself, quote, you have to accept responsibility for it. You did it. You were there. You can't rationalize it. End quote. All of that is bullshit. Every last uh-huh. single bit. Because, like, what what did the military have to do with anything? And then for you to be like, n- he was going to do this regardless. Mm-hmm. He was reportedly on drugs and alcohol that night. Nope. Drugs and marijuana, which, I mean. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started. You know what I do when I get, when I do my marijuana? <laughs> I clean the kitchen. 
Okay, well, I, I don't know how it is mixed with a Valium, Secanol, Adderall, or uh, a different sedative that I forgot to get the name for. I don't know how it reacts, okay? I only know what two of those things are, and I don't think I've done but one of them. Yeah, I don't know what those other things are, but I still feel like... like well, you know up, you Valium? Yeah, I think that's a pain pill, right? Mm-hmm. To my understanding. I didn't do research on that one because I went, pain pill, done. Yes. Red. Okay. That is secondol, which is used to treat insomnia. Black beauties are Adderall, which we all know what Adderall is. Yellow jackets. I didn't get the name for this one, but it was a, it was used as a sedative or a pre-anesthetic. What the hell kind of what what was his goal here? I don't. I have I no clue, like, but I know. I feel like he just found someone on the street and was like, "Do you have any pills? Give me them all." Probably, yeah. Point is, so he claims that he was. On all these these pills, he was high during the time of the the murders as well. Now, during his clemency hearing, Oren Walker would testify against him. Let's remember, Oren still has his memory. He's already testified against him once. Oren would recall that, quote, after he shot Mrs. Naisbit first, then he was kind of prancing or walking in a manner that I got the impression he was kind of enjoying what he was doing. This has been hard for me. It's been hard for me to believe that I was ever involved with this. My son Stanley's life was taken with two shots and Drano. He tried five different times to kill me. Each one could have been lethal. It certainly has changed our lives. And he went on to talk about the trauma his younger son and his wife had also gone through, even though they were not present during the torture. To have to say out loud... I watched my son die by being shot twice and Durano. That gave me goosebumps when he mm-hmm. said that. Because how do you ever even just like. How do you basic? Cope with that? Yeah, just like basic drain clogging, you know, like it happens over time. You just got to clean out the drain. What do you every time that happens? That's a memory that poor man's going to have to freaking relive just doing basic housework. So. Pierre, he was denied clemency. Good, dick. So he also denied his last meal. He spent the final day fasting, praying, singing hymns, and reading the Bible. As a little side note, he did bequeath all his money to Andrews, a whole whopping $29. No, that was a dig. (laughs) That was a dig. Where that came from, I don't know, but the reports, multiple reports were like, yeah, he... Just gave him his twenty, his last $29. Whatever. He was executed by lethal injection on August 27th, 1987. Moments before the injection, he would state, quote, I'll be glad when this is over, end quote. And we it said will. he didn't, I know, right? And it said he didn't really say this to anyone specifically, maybe more to himself or just in general. And his final words were, quote, thank you. I'm just going to say my prayers. I hope he rots in hell. Oh, he's for sure in hell. Now, William Andrews, he was on death row for 18 years. During the 18 years, uh, his prison record showed um, repeated violations for setting fires, concealing makeshift weapons, possessing drugs, possessing booze, planning escapes, and assaulting guards. How do you set a fire in prison? I don't know how you set a fire in prison. I'm just here. Were you rubbing two pencils together? Did they give him a magnifying glass? I don't understand. 
I don't really. Is that what he spent his $29 on was a lighter? I don't know. I don't know. What what now? Hey, so good. He's a great person as well. Yeah. Now, after the NAACP's appeal, Andrews would accuse the judicial system of racism. He's now jumping on that bandwagon. And he would say he never meant to kill anyone. The statement, however, is rebuted because detectives would cite a statement by Andrews. And in this statement, Andrews admit to being the one to purchase the Drano the night of the murders. So what was it for, buddy? What was it? What was it for? So there's that. Shortly after Pierre's execution, another petition for a stay of Andrew's execution was submitted to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. The petition alleged that a handwritten note had been found in the jury area during a recess. Reportedly, it stated, hang the slur word here. At the time, the judge refused to request for uh, refused to request for a mistrial. He also refused to question jurors about it and go further. Um, but even with this appeal, his death sentence was upheld. So, at his clemency hearing, his lawyers would focus on his age at the time of the crime. He was just 19 years old, under the influence of drugs at the time of the crime, and overall, he was a changed man. Though I think his prison records might indicate otherwise. Yeah, that had to have been a hard thing to say. Right. Though there are a lot of people um, in reports that stated he did show remorse for his actions. Which ones? Oh. Which which actions? At, at the I need murders. to know. I don't know which actions. It didn't specify. It just said his actions. So. I guess if he was so young, maybe he felt bad later on, but also like... This was just, it, it was too brutal. I can't. There were also a lot of reports that would state that Andrews had told Pierre he couldn't pull the trigger. He couldn't, and Pierre tried, like, you've got to shoot him. And Andrews was like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. He could force him to drink Drano, but he can't shoot them. What? I don't know. His last meal was a banana split, which he shared with his sister and niece. He was executed by lethal injection on July 30th, 1992, scheduled for 1.30 a.m. His final words, which were spoken directly to Deputy Corrections Corrections Director Bruce Egan, were, quote, Thank those who tried so hard to keep me alive. I hope they continue to fight for equal justice after I'm gone. Tell my family goodbye, and I love them. At 1.35, after he'd been strapped to the gurney, he would lift his head and speak directly to his sister, saying, quote, I love you. Bye-bye. End quote. And he was declared dead at 1.46 a.m. I never knew they were allowed to share their last meal. I have no idea. I just know that he did. I also don't, I don't, I don't know. I've never been in this situation. I hope I'm never in this situation. But I can't imagine wanting your niece there for that. Yeah, I don't really know. Um, I'm just here. You know? I mean, I'm imagining like a child. Or a teenager, but that feels really dark. It probably was a teenager. He was 18. He spent 18 years in prison. I don't know if his sister was older or younger, so. That feels traumatic for an unnecessary reason. Well, I hated this every minute of Oh, we're not even done. Good God. 
1996, the Inter-American Commission found that the U.S. had violated its international obligations by de- denying William Andrews a trial free from racial discrimination. I, however, couldn't find anything additional there. So what action they took, I don't know. Keith Leon R- Richards, he was the getaway driver. He was not sentenced to death. It is very possible he was unaware of Pierre's intention and Andrew's intention to kill the hostages. I personally struggle with it a little bit, but I, I don't know. He was just 19 years old at the time of the crime. He was paroled on May 12th, 1987, after being in prison for 13 years. After he was paroled, he would move to Oklahoma to live with relatives. He would commit suicide on August 8th, 1992, a week after Andrew's execution, which for me, I can't tell if that's a guilty conscience or a coincidence. Yeah, it's kind of the timing. The timing of it is really coincidental. Um, mm-hmm. But I can also see it being a guilty conscience if he didn't know what was going. If he like legitimately did not know that they were going to do that, and then they ended up doing it, and he had a part in it. I can, I can see where someone would struggle with that. Yeah, so I can see it being that way with a guilty conscience, how you described, he didn't know, found out later, felt really horrible, or a guilty conscience that he was part of it or more involved than what he claimed. I can see that side too, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's he's also gone, commit suicide, which awful people don't commit suicide. It's not great. Get the help you need. Um. Courtney Naisbitt, who survived with the severe brain injury, he was never the same. He was able to return to school and graduate with his class in 1976. He was, however, unable to continue with college, and he would drop out due to his brain injury. He was not able to hold down a long-term job, and he just, he struggled. He struggled so much, he was forced to apply for Social Security assistance. He would go on to marry Catherine Hunter in November 1958. He would suffer from slowed or impaired speech, chronic pain, and he would unfortunately pass on June 4th, 2002 at the age of 44, and it is believed that his death was related to the injuries he sustained in the attack. He was really young still. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And then we have Orrin Walker. Orrin Walker, he played a huge role in catching the high fight killers. He identified him. He testified in trial. He would also unfortunately pass on February 13th, 2000, at the age of 69. I could not find anything additional about his passing and what could have caused it, if it was previous injuries or other um, other health issues. I'm not sure on his passing. That is the story of the awful, awful hi-fi killers. Yeah, I really hate it. Yep, it's definitely not my favorite. I did include pictures. Um, The only victim I could not find a picture of was Orrin Walker. I I just struggled to find anything on him. I don't really know um, why that is, but I just couldn't. Mm -hmm. And then I did not include a picture of Roberts because, again, I couldn't. No, I didn't include one. I'm just kidding. There's one of him in there. It's just a really grainy picture. Yeah, I I don't even know what to say. I think I said it all during the story. And I really, really hate it. 
I told you to buckle up. I didn't. I wasn't sufficiently buckled. That's your fault, not mine. All right, I'm ready for a less awful story. Okay. This is what I got, all right? I should have did a different one, but here we go. Um, I gave you ample warning this morning. I wasn't changing it. Get over it. I added something to the end to end on a lighthearted note. Okay, well. Take it and deal with it. Oh, this guy is my best friend already. Okay, so this guy is the Bunyip. And it is originally an Australian First Nations story that was spread across Australia. And it was spread spread by European settlers. And so obviously, as this goes, as as we normally see happen with this, he's changed over time. The word Bunyip has... It's been traced back to the Wumba Wumba language of the Aboriginal people of Victoria in southeastern Australia. And that's either Wumba Wumba or Wimba Wimba. I'm sorry, I I couldn't find a pronunciation key. Um, This is usually, Bunyip is usually translated as devil or evil spirit. But other people also argue that that's not right at all. And that... Bunyip comes from the word Bunyil, which means it's Bunyil was a mythical great man, and he is the ones who made the mountains, the river, he made man, he made all of the animals. So it sounds like a, a, you know, like a godlike figure. Some sort of deity, yeah. Deity, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. See, this is this is why you're here. You're here for me. By the 1900s, the word bunyip took on the meaning of a pretender or an imposter. And more recently, Australian uh, bunyip is Australian slang to indicate someone who's particularly stupid, almost to the point of being too offensive to uh, exist. I'm going to use that, though. Yeah. So Pierre, Pierre's a bunyip. Oh, he's the biggest bunyip the I have biggest ever bunyip. met. Yes. Bunyip is part of traditional beliefs and stories throughout Australia. There's been at least nine different regional variations across the country. And it's said to serve as a cautionary tale warning children of the dangers of the environment, particularly water holes, especially at night. Which I feel like in Australia, that's probably not a bad thing. Right. They got, y'all got some wild stuff and some y'all got some shit yes that we keep there please yes so the bunyip he's uh he's amphibious he's actually almost entirely aquatic and they swim really quickly with either fins or flippers and they can live what seemed like anywhere there's water lakes rivers swamps watering holes in some situations i saw puddles which I feel like is an exaggeration. And because they live in water, they stink really bad. You're going to smell them before you see them. That's so rude. I mean, is it rude or is it honest? It's so Give them some soap at least when you tell them. Well, I do feel like we would get along. Because they eat crawfish. Which, like, me too. Me too. You can come over this weekend if you want. Oh, I'm going out of town this weekend. When I have a crawfish bowl, I'll let the bunyip know. 
Well, geez, invite the bunyip before me. I see how it is. Well, obviously, you're going to know about <laughs> I have to deliver the invite to the bunyip, huh? Yes. Yeah, yes. Bring them with you. It's B-Y-O-B. <laughs> He's my plus one. Yes. Mm -hmm. I guess you can bring Cody, but definitely the bunyip. Okay, done. Uh, some people do claim that they eat humans, particularly women and children. Oh, I guess so. Maybe don't bring a bunyip. <laughs> I didn't think this through. Hold on. I did not think this through. As we're sending me to deliver the invitation to the bunyip, you're sending me as a meal. Oh my God. I thought I was inviting him to a crawfish boil. I'm inviting him to a smorgasbord. There's women, children, and crawfish. He's going to have the time of his life. <laughs> so they are nocturnal. They have a piercing roar. And they lay their eggs in platypus nests. I'm trying to get these words out, y'all. I'm so sorry. Why? Okay, why do they do a platypus nest? Is it because a platypus was thought to be not a real thing for a while there? That's a good question. I don't know. I just figured it's because platypus lay eggs. And they're also aquatic. So, like, if you're going to choose between a caterpillar, what? No. I don't know where they come from. Hold on. A platypus and a crocodile to lay your eggs in a nest? I feel like I would choose the platypus. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like maybe don't be a dick and don't lay your eggs with, don't leave your children with strangers. Look, I do it five days a week and I pay damn good money for that, okay? Okay, but they're asking for free babysitting here. I feel like they're just asking for free babies. Like, what happens when they hatch? Surely the platypus isn't, well, you're mine now. It's not, um, oh, gosh. You know exactly, like, all the birds that are like, you're my mother now. Yeah. I, I have no idea. I can't. It's not like Hagrid and Norbit. No, I don't feel like it would be. Maybe I'm wrong. Hagrid would for sure take on a bunyip. Oh, absolutely. This is right up his alley. I bet he already, he had some. Yeah. I mean, just look at the damn thing. <laughs> That's why I'm saying I'm sure he had some. <laughs> Wouldn't matter what shape or form it was in. He had one of each. I'm so glad you said that. Because that was a perfect segue. All of these are bunyips. Every single one of them. Oh, because I caught they, on to that. They are described in so many different ways. One source that I come across said that if you ask 10 different people what a bunyip is, 10 different people are going to give you 10 different descriptions. Okay. I feel like we're confused on what a bunyip is then. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to tell you then. I do have a question. Okay. Why does this one look just like a really large beaver? It's in the Which Australia. one of those looks like a beaver to you? It just doesn't have the teeth. Oh, now I see the scaly arms. Hold on. Oh, okay. You're looking at the... Okay. It's the collection, the the yes. Australian stamp. From a distance, he just looks like a pretty large beaver. I do not see beaver when I look at that thing. You know the Pokemon Sand Shrew? That is what I see. I see Sand Shrew with a hairy back and a thumb for a tail. You want the one right next to it? I just see a really depressed chicken with a weird tail. You know what? That's actually a pretty good description because that's from a children's book and he kind of just nailed it. <laughs> it looks like a 
overpressed chicken with a weird tail. He's got some overalls on. He's questioning life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you pretty much just nailed that book from what I from what I read about it. I tried to buy it, and it was fifty dollars for a hard copy. Yeah, so oh, apparently it's a pretty good book. Oh, it better be pretty freaking good. I better change my life if it's fifty bucks. Okay, so there. Yeah, in case you haven't figured it out, there's a lot of different pictures. Y'all just got to look at them. But wait, one last question. Um, this red guy also in the stamp collection. Why does he look like he's got some real good calves? Oh, he really does. I guess because of the swimming, <laughs> the constant oh, swimming. Oh, yes. I'm just looking at him, and he's got some serious calves there. They are defined. They are something else. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to stop interrupting. Okay. <laughs> so physically, um, as we've hinted at. The bunyip is described in many different ways. Some people say he looks like a giant starfish. And he had a snout like an owl. I think that meant his beak. Because I don't know owls to have snouts. Some people say that it is a long-necked creature with a small head. Others say it looks like a seal or a swimming dog. There's one that I found that said that it does look like a seal or a dog. but it's four to six feet long. It has a shaggy, dark coat that's either black or brown. And it has a head like a bulldog with prominent ears, no tail, and whiskers. But they're like a seal or an otter where they're really long. I just don't understand how all these descriptions fit into being one cryptid. Oh, I'm not done. Oh, okay. <laughs> the long-necked ones, they are five to 15 feet long. They have black or brown fur, big ears, small tusks, a head like a horse or an emu, which are also two completely different things. I'm so, I was just about to say like a horse <laughs> or an emu. What are we, we're either going Sims direction or Bryce's nightmares. What the hell are we doing? <laughs> it has a long neck with a mane and a many folds of skin, which is just foul to say out loud. And it also has a horse tail. Okay, listen, now we've got an emu head with this awful body and a horse tail. This isn't, this isn't yes. right. It's not. No, none of it. Are you guys sure it wasn't just an owl? No, <laughs> it was. I mean, maybe if owls had snouts. <laughs> it was just a really deformed owl. Okay. It, it was just a swimming owl. That's all. With its neck flaps oh and there was one last description i found this is a quote an amphibious flying creature with a cyclops like horn wait cyclops do they have horns i took it to mean like like a cyclops a eye but a eye? horn yeah like wouldn't that just be wouldn't a unicorn that be unicorn yeah <laughs> an aquatic unicorn cyclops I just want to see what a cyclops looks like. Because I feel like it's an it's eye. Like a, it's not a yeah, It's horn. just a giant with three eyes, right? That's what, how I understood it. Oh, this one has a horn. Oh, where? Oh, just one in the middle of his head? Like on his, yeah. on the top of the, his head? Okay, so correction. We've been saying cyclops. They have one eye, right? They don't have a... Oh my God, we've been talking about triclopses. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, no, Cyclops has a singular eye. Uh, they don't have the third eye. They don't have that. But I'm just not... I'm not seeing horns on any... Well, then. Did not want to see that. Okay, we're going to keep scrolling. Um, I don't even know what just happened. And I'm uncomfortable just, for you. Because I saw your face. I just saw a Cyclops penis. It's fine. What is... What? Just on Google. And that's what came up. I kept scrolling. Oh, look, this guy has... Look, this one has one. You need to change your Google and say that you are not 18 years old. I would do that after seeing a Cyclops penis. This guy, look, he's he's got a horn. I don't know if I want to watch your broadcast, Bryce. <laughs> I really don't know it's, now. It's on a safe one. Okay, yeah. Oh, look, this one's got a good horn, too. I'm finding a lot with horns now, by the way. Okay, so it's not uncommon. We're just uneducated. Okay. Well, I mean, we didn't even know what the hell a Cyclops was, so... <laughs> <laughs> Cyclops has one singular eye. I fixed our definition. <laughs> when Europeans settled in Australia, they believed that there was some kind of undiscovered or unknown animal that was just waiting to be found because of these stories they kept hearing from the First Nations people. In 1845, a newspaper called the Geelong Advertiser ran a story titled Wonderful Discovery of a New Animal. What did they Do discover? It. The animal was called the bunyip. And it was represented as uniting the characteristics of a bird and an alligator. It had a head resembling an emu with a long bill at the extremity of which is a traverse projection on each side with serrated edges like the bone of a stingray. This is all a quote, by the way. Its body and legs partake of the nature of the alligator. The hind legs are remarkably thick and strong, and the forelegs are much longer, but still of great strength. The extremities are furnished with long claws. This thing is awful. It's absolutely horrible. <laughs> um, they say that its unusual method of killing its prey is by hugging it to death, which sounds like the absolute worst way to go. How is that thing gonna hug me? Any of these depictions. First of all, it'd have to get close enough to hug me. Ain't no way, ain't no how I'm letting it get that close. When it's in the water, it swims like a frog. And when it's on shore, it walks on its hind legs with its head erect in which position it takes 12 or 13 feet in height. And it still ain't no way, ain't no how. I am not going, I'm never going near open water again. <laughs> in Australia or just ever? Ever. And imagine these things are said to live in puddles too. This is why I work from home and I am a hermit. I am a happy hermit <laughs> in my happy hermit hovel. I kept finding stories um, of, and it was multiple, but they said that settlers would find bones, so they would take them to First Nations people to identify it. And like every time, as soon as these people looked at the bones, they would be like, oh, that's a bunyip. Here's a picture. And just give it to them. And newspapers would run these stories like all the time. 
Why do I feel like they were like, you're annoying me. Yeah, it's a bunny up. Here's an awful picture of it. Go away. That would honestly be wonderful. Like, don't you think it'd be hilarious if the First Nation people were like, every time they bring us bones, guys, spread the word every time, tell them it's a bunny up, give them a picture, and we're going to laugh our asses off, okay? Yeah. Doesn't matter what the picture is. Just makes it. Actually, it's better if you make it something different every time. Yeah. Draw your own. Have your kids doodle something and hand it off to them. It'll be hilarious. Perfect. Little Jimmy gave, I doubt his name was Jimmy. I don't oh, know. no. They, he gave me a picture this morning. You can start with this one. Perfect. Done. That's a bunyip, my friend. Can you imagine me and you settling somewhere? You know, we take these bones to the First Nations people and they're like, yep, it's a bunyip. We're out of there. Oh, yeah. No. First of all, we 100% believe you. So we would be the ones writing in the newspapers <laughs> and we would also be the ones packing our shit and getting the hell out of there. We would be mailing our letter to the newspaper. You might get it a few months late, but we're out of there the second you said something, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I absolutely. don't want to encounter this. Mm-hmm. James, grab the kids, meet me at the train station. We got to go yesterday. Why did we come here in the first place? Mm-hmm. This was a terrible idea, James. <laughs> Cody, why would you guys talk us into this? I wanted snow, not bunyips. I wanted a beach. Not bunyips. Let's see. Nobody's happy in this situation. <laughs> not me. Not you. Not the bunyip. Everybody is just pissed off and hungry. The First Nations people might be getting a giggle. I hope so. I hope. I think. I hope that's their petty way of revenge. Mm-hmm. The pettiest revenge. In 1846, uh, <laughs> a settler found a skull on a riverbank in New South Wales, and he claimed that. Every Aboriginal person he showed it to called it a bunyip. Roughly a year later, multiple experts identified it as an unborn cow skull. Which leads a little bit of proof to your theory there. They're just messing with us. And we deserve it. (laughs) Everyone deserves it. In 1847, the Sydney Morning Herald ran an eyewitness account of a bunyip. This man claimed that it was as big as a calf. His ears pricked up when it noticed him. He had two large tusks and a thick mane of fur running from his head to his neck. And it scared this man so much that he just ran away. But he said as he looked behind him, the creature was running away in a different direction with an awkward shambling gallop. Are you sure you didn't just see, like, Scooby-Doo? Listen. Listen. Not everything has to be a bunion. (laughs) Just like how not all cryptids are owls. Okay, guys? The awkward shambling gallop just reminds me of, like, Scooby and Shaggy. Just booking it when a monster shows up. I'm just thinking, like, a deer running away. What if it's a not deer running away? then you're not going to see me there. (laughs) About 86 miles southwest of Sydney is a village called Burrowang, and it's nestled in the highlands. In a valley under this village is a large swamp, and for years, bunyip have been said to just be, like, 
I guess, hanging out in this swamp, probably living in it. In 1930, there was a report of railroad workers that fled in horror and refused to return after hearing strange noises coming from the swamp. They just heard noises. They didn't see anything. No, they just heard the noises and they were like, you know what? That sounds good. I'm out of here. That's all I need. I don't need to find out what that is. They sound pretty smart to me. <laughs> I'm not going to blame them at all. They were like, mm, this sounds like work. No, thank you. Yeah, this sounds like <laughs> something that I have no business with. Um, this, I'm going this home. Sounds, yeah, this sounds above my pay grade. Yeah. Oh, for sure. This does not <laughs> sound railroad related. We got to go. I'm out. Bye. Many reports of the burrowing bunyip's bull-like roar, which I didn't know bulls roared, but here we are. They were found. Well, hell, we didn't know that owls had snouts. That's true, yeah. Or schnozzes, whatever you want to call them. I don't know. Look, we're learning a lot of things about a lot of animals (laughs) today. Emus have horse tails, you know, no big deal. Platypuses lay bunyip eggs. It's just... Just, it's guys common knowledge yeah just your regular sunday uh so yeah they they started talking about these bull-like roars in the 1960s one guy ed wolfrey he was a manager at the bear wing pub at the time and he said that the roar was so loud it shook the bottles off the top shelf of the bar that is Which one sounds hell of a roar it sounds really expensive, too. Like, the top shelf, not even the bottom. Did he save any? Like, did he do a cool catch in Spider-Man style, catch everything? I doubt it. Somehow I doubt it. Maybe the bunyip will pay for it. Is there bunyip insurance? Can I get insurance against bunyips? I, that's a really good question. I really want to know the answer to that. I'll call it my insurance first thing in the morning. Hey, do you guys have okay. bunyip protection? For the love of God, record that conversation. <laughs> what is a bunyip? It's native in Australia. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's hard to say. There's a bunch. It's actually easier to ask what's not a bunyip. Use your imagination and anything that you can think of, that's a bunyip. Mm-hmm. As long as it doesn't make sense, I should say. Yes. Just smash three animals together and it's probably a bunyip. Yeah. Not even, don't even do the same species. Do completely opposite. A horse and an emu with a crocodile body. Yeah, one of them has to be aquatic because apparently it lives in water. So. A turtle, a falcon, and a pony. Like just start throwing a bunyip yeah it's a bunyip yeah so you better bunyip figure it out (laughs) uh luckily they haven't heard the bunyip since 1974 when part of this swamp was dammed up well that's rude i mean i guess they i guess i don't know maybe he moved on he's like i don't like your dam see this is why i now need bunyip protection is they might have moved on from australia Oh, that's a good point. God, our insurance person's going to be like, you need mental help. Please <laughs> seek please seek medical attention immediately. Your address is going to be put on a list for sure. <laughs> My phone number is on a list. If they call, 
Call the people in white coats. <laughs> bring a bring a jacket. You're gonna want one. And we're not talking a cold weather one. Bring like three, maybe just to be safe. Okay, guys. Yeah. Can you Im- can you imagine? Each jacket's bigger than the rest. It's gonna be like a straight jacket nesting doll. You know, it might be kind of comfy. Just make sure I got a pillow that can, you know, make me comfortable. <laughs> Gotta be nice and thick or layer those pillows. I don't care. I'm not going to need a blanket because I'm going to be sweating my ass off with all the freaking jackets. You're going to feel but really secure. It'll be like I'm in a constant hug. <laughs> so that's the story of the bun yet. Oh, no, I'm not done yet. Oh, okay. okay. I told you it ended on a good note and we're almost there. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I just made your good note a bad note. <laughs> no. Try again. It hasn't been heard since the 70s, and I'm over here like, yeah, just because it moved on. Oh, that was just the burrowing bunyip. That was just that one. Regardless of whether it's real or not, Australia has embraced the bunyip, so be nice. They have classic Australian folklore. Uh, multiple children's books were written about it. Uh, the The stamps you were talking about. Those were actually introduced. They were sold temporarily. They were introduced in 1994. And in 2001, the National Library of Australia featured a traveling exhibition. Yeah. That featured bunyip sightings. Listen. I'm down with embracing them. I want those stamps. What do I need to do to get my hands on them? Uh, I found some on eBay for $2.50. Plus, I have to pay for postage to get it here. Yeah. Ironic, isn't it? You have to pay for postage to get your postage. No, I'm good. I don't want to pay (laughs) $30,000 for a freaking stamp. So I do have one more surprise. And I'm going to try to get through this. Okay. But when I found it, I didn't realize I was going to sound like this. So I wanted to end on a delightful song I found by Bob Brown. I found it on Spotify and YouTube, and I'm going to do my best here. They say that if you're camping by a billabong at night, to look out for those bunyips because they'll scare you out of sight. They're supposed to be ferocious with a breath as cold as fire, but I know lots of bunyips. That was not what this said at all. (laughs) Sorry. They're supposed to be ferocious with a breath as cold as ice, but I know a lot of bunyips, and they're very, very nice. There's a, bun- <laughs> There's a bunyip sleeps on the edge of my bed. He's got four big eyes and a big double head. He gets annoyed, and his face is turned red, but he keeps all the flies away. There's another one sleeps at the edge of my room with feet like a frog and hair like a broom. He drinks ditch water and, he- and me mom's perfume. But he keeps all the flies away. I'm not scared, scared of the bunyips. They're not scared of me. If you meet a real live bunyip, ask him home for tea. (laughs) There's a bunyip sleeps on the bathroom floor and he's got long toes and a long shark claw. He scares the dogs with his bunyips roar, but he keeps all the flies away. I'm pretty sure you said they stunk. The flies come to him. Not these. I don't know what he did. Or where he found his bunyips. But they keep all the flies away. Bullshit. People say if a bunyip meets you, all they'll want to do is eat you. Don't believe what people say. Bunyips don't behave that way. 
there's a bunny who sleeps in a fire in the fireplace, and he walks around with a smile on his face. He keeps his teeth in a pillowcase, but he keeps all the flies away. He is a bunyip, right? Um, the author? I have no idea. Oh, he has to be a bunyip. There's a bunyip sleeps in a crack in the wall, and not and he's not very wide, but he's very very tall. He can roll himself up and bounce like a ball, but he keeps all the flies away. Don't be so. Don't be scared. Scared of the bunyips. They're not scared of you. If you meet a real life bunyip, ask him home for breakfast too. There's a bunyip sleeps in my desk at school, and he wears sunglasses because he thinks he's cool. Everywhere he writes bunyips rule, and he keeps all the flies away. He keeps all the flies away, and that's that. That was a thousand percent written by a bunyip. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. That is a bunyip being like, no, we don't eat people as it's salivating over the 10 star freaking feast Amanda is about to do at her crawfish boil. I haven't yet decided um, if I'm going to have that crawfish boil, but he would be allegedly he would be very good at keeping the flies away. Bullshit. They are stuck stuck on the thought that someone said they stink and now it's no we keep the flies away no sir you attract the flies maybe you keep them away from the neighbors because the flies are swarming (laughs) to you but you're not keeping them away from me if you're here in my company no absolutely not i have to say my least favorite one of all of them is the one that sleeps in a crack in the wall what my whole I hated the whole thing. They don't devour people. <laughs> Bullshit. Yes, they do. You said you're lying. This is a bunyip. I know it without a doubt. You uh. and the worst is I'm envisioning that very first picture in the drive, the slithery one. That's what I envision wrote this. That is the exact thing I envision wrote this. That's the one I imagine's in the wall. This guy's horrible. I just don't believe anything that they just said in that poem. It is a very catchy tune. I don't care. You gotta listen to it. It's Uh-oh. very catchy. Refuse. It's an earworm, man. It's a bop. I'm telling you. Just give it a shot. You and Annie can have fun with that. I'm good. <laughs> oh, she did. She danced. She See, enjoyed it. I'm solid. I'm good. A bunyip 1000% wrote that song and they're brainwashing you. That's all it comes down to. I refuse to believe any other hypothesis. All right. Well, that was the bunyip. That was something else. (laughs) Amanda, you're being brainwashed. Totally fine. Your prerogative. I will not be listening to that song. I don't trust it. But anyways, thank you all for listening to Helen Hills Podcast. To see pictures from this episode, you can follow us on Instagram, Helen Hills Podcast, Twitter, Helen Hills Pod, or Facebook by searching Helen Hills Podcast. You can find us on Linktree by typing in Helen Hills Podcast. If you want to support us, please like, review, rate, share, and subscribe on your preferred listening platforms. If you want to take your support one step further so we can create some additional content for you, you can donate through Patreon. We're working to release specials for our patrons. If you have your own true crime or paranormal story suggestions or words of encouragement, please email us at helenhealspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to tell your friends to listen with you as well. Bye. Bye.